Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with the earnings on Wall Street then. An impressive quarter for equity trading revenue at Bank of America. A disappointing quarter for debt trading at Bank of America. Let's get the highlights and cross over to Sonali Basak, Bloomberg Finance reporter here in New York. What are the highlights, Sonali? And good morning to you. Good morning. So the highlights are definitely the equity trading. That's something everyone's excited about. The question is whether those levels are sustainable. We saw a lot of volatility in the first quarter. Will that continue? The other thing that is really low that I'm watching here, the investment banking revenue came in at $1.35 billion. Um, it was estimated to be $1.48 billion. That's something other people will be looking at as well. Um, but on top of that, loan growth was strong. Um, they also were able to keep expenses in line, and that's something a lot of people are looking for from Brian, Brian Moynihan. Well, CEO Brian Moynihan has been cutting costs aggressively and continues to set pretty big targets. Where are we? In this, uh, in this journey for cutting costs, Sonali? Sure. So we're looking it, for it to come in below $53 billion in expense reduction. Uh, you know, the, the, we want expenses to be around there this year. They were above $54 billion last year. Uh, the efficiency ratio was down below 60% in the first quarter, and it was above that all four, for all four quarters last year. And that's definitely one of the top goals. I think two questions for this market is, what's the read across for the other banks? Morgan Stanley? Goldman Sachs. And then the other one that you raised, whether this can bleed into the second quarter. And when you look at equity trading revenue, that's been the really impressive part of these numbers and JP Morgan on Friday as well. But if you look at the volumes on equities going into the second quarter, it doesn't look like this story really is bleeding into Q2. What are the signs that you see? It's also it's that, and it's also the fact that FIC trading is a much bigger business for these firms. Morgan Stanley is supposed to be one of the biggest beneficiaries from the higher equity trading revenues. And, of course, Goldman tomorrow will be as well. But people are going to want to see the sustainability of that, given the volumes. And then also, they want to see what the plan is for FIC. Sonali Basak, Bloomberg Finance reporter, joining us here in New York. Great to get up to speed on some of the earnings, of course. Goldman Sachs coming up tomorrow. Bank of America up by about a half of 1%. Good morning to you. Tom Kane. Oh, good morning. One more question, if I could, is Shanali Basic. And, and it's real simple. In retail, they want to be like Chase, right? How, I mean, how far behind in metrics is Bank of America from a retail juggernaut like Chase? That's, I actually don't have the numbers right in front of me. That's a good question. They are trying. We were talking about They're this. trying. It's like a big deal, isn't it? It's, I mean, they want to open more than 500 branches across America this year at a time where they're also trying to cut costs. Um, exactly. They, and, and isn't everybody else trying to close branches? The thing they both really pushed in their earnings releases this year right. is the push to digital. Right. The assumption that you know doing more online can keep costs low while also selling people many things at the same time. Yeah, John, can we ask Shanali a question about Morgan Stanley? Is that part of the rules this morning? Uh, you can. We I, can? Of course you can. Who are they going to buy? I mean, James oh, Gorman gosh. is like hit the ball out of the park on wealth management and all that. We all know the story that you cover every day. Within your reporting, what's the strategic to-do for Fortress Gorman? 
So a really big idea here, I think, is what they're going to do with their asset management unit. You know, it's under $500 billion. Goldman is in the trillion-dollar club, for example. Uh, J.P. Morgan is also up there in asset management. It's a real opportunity to drive yeah. in fee-based income. Um, I think that's a, they already have done some tuck-in acquisitions in real estate. Okay. But doing something big in asset management would be a bit... A, a big deal. Shania Bassick with us uh, this morning. Her coverage of Morgan Stanley and helping out today with the Bank of America. All of this devolves to the rate market. Price lower, rates up. What's the the, the responsiveness, Ira Jersey? The elasticity of all these bankers to actually what goes on in your world of bonds and bills and notes. Yeah, well, it matters quite a lot. I mean, if you look at just FIC revenues, for example, you look at fixed income revenues, and clearly things like, um, you know, how well uh, these banks did in, tr- in trying to trade treasury securities matters. It's how what's going on in the corporate bond market, how many corporate bond deals have come, and, and what's uh, trading like in, in that neck of the woods. So all of these things matter. And when you get things like more treasury securities, which we're going to have a lot more of over the next couple of years with trillion-dollar deficits coming, will that crowd out things like investment grade or high-yield corporate debt? Or will mortgage uh, the mortgage market come back as yields have gone up? the number of mortgages being issued is is significantly lower and because of that that's that's another drag sometimes on um on earnings for uh for for you know financial firms with their um with their fixed income trading and and uh um and issuance yeah what's becoming clearer ira after q1 and the earnings that we've had from both jp morgan and bank of america that the story of q1 was equity volatility and the story of q1 for these banks so far is equity trading what's been clearer for many market participants is that that equity vol hasn't spilled over into rates vol and i think a big question for so many people was whether it would or whether the equity vol would just roll over stay elevated but at historically normalized levels and it looks like the latter's happening and not the former how do you expect that to actually materialize in the coming weeks and months yeah it's interesting so it really depends on where you're looking at for volatility in the fixed income market so if you look at um 10-year treasuries we've been in this range for a while which um you know it's, it's not a huge surprise that we're in this range so what tends to happen with treasury yields is you have a lot of volatility over a short period of time and then you kind of um just uh uh just trade in a range for a while, so therefore things like uh, volatility looks very low. But you look at uh, you, you look at what's gone on with implied volatility, so with what's gone on in the options market, and that also went way up. So when the VIX spiked a couple of months ago, you wound up having um, having rate vol spike quite a lot as well, and we haven't retraced the whole way yet. Uh, compared to uh, um, compared to where we were, and the volatility ends up being in the front end of the market, right? So it's where um, what's the Fed doing? What's going on with short-term interest rates based on um, on the likelihood that the Fed's going to hike or not? Uh, just to uh, run through things, what we're expecting a little bit later, um, Ira, retail sales in the United States in just under 90 minutes' time. Um, it's been disappointing over the last few months. A lot of people expected retail sales in the United States to pick up after that tax bill was signed into law. Are you expecting that to happen anytime soon or is this the trend? Yeah. So, you know, obviously the market's expectation is that we're going to see a, a better number this month um, for for March than we did for um, uh, for, uh, for for the first couple of months of the year. Um, it, you know, the, the tax cuts are very incremental. So the, the and, and I think a lot of people are really worried is will they keep it? So will uh, will uh, these tax cuts be permanent. And if they are, then you wind up seeing somewhat better spending in retail sales numbers. But this is a huge part of the economy. And this is why we wind up having the focus on this. And when you look at a lot of leading indicators, so if you look at the leading economic indicators for not only for the US, but 
for uh, for Europe, for example, and you see a slowdown in those indicators. So it's not a huge surprise that you wind up not having you know massive retail sales gains here, at least at the moment. Thank you so much for today. It was really really good to hear you, and particularly the the dovetail with banking as well. Ira Jersey, of Bloomberg Intelligence, more than patient today with terrific uh, news slogan. The sequence of excellence for Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations has gone from ruling but not governing to his widely acclaimed The Struggle for Egypt to the new book False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. Stephen, I want you to speak to our audience coast to coast this morning about the fact that Damascus is 500 miles from Baghdad and 2,300 miles from Kabul. Is Damascus our next front for the troops in America? Well, we have 2,000 troops already in Syria, albeit not anywhere close to Damascus. It seems highly unlikely that anybody would contemplate marching an army into Damascus to engage in regime change after our experience in Iraq beginning in 2003. So no... But Syria has become an important pivot for American interests in the Middle East and even Europe. I look at the images, forget about the horrific images of chemical warfare, of the destruction of City A, City B, City C, City D. Do you just assume that one day Damascus will look like those other cities? Uh, I think that's unlikely. Um, It's true that the Syrian regime, along with the Russians and the Iranians, have devastated major Syrian cities in this fight. Um, Video of the eastern sections of Aleppo, for example, look like Hiroshima after uh, the atomic bombing. But Damascus is the center of uh, the Assad regime, and it will be protected at all costs, which is precisely why the regime has used chemical weapons and huge amounts of conventional force against these rebellious outskirts and suburbs of the city. Stephen, there was some concern about a risk of escalation. Of course, a risk of escalation being if you have strikes on Syria, there may be an accident. You may end up hitting the Russians by accident. How much conversations were there between that team response of the US, the UK and, and, and France, that multilateral response to the situation in Syria? How much of a conversation was there with Russia ahead of that? Well, we certainly uh, indicated that these strikes were coming. Uh, and it gave the Russians an opportunity to clear out of places. We certainly made it clear what we were going to hit. Now, you have to go by what the Pentagon said, saying that they used the usual deconfliction procedures that have been set up, given how many militaries are operating in the airspace over over Syria. So uh, whether the president uh, or emissaries of his administration gave the Russians specific warning remains unclear. But uh, the Russians were obviously clued into what would be coming. And Stephen, I think investors this morning a lot calmer about the situation in Syria in terms of the risk of military escalation. Would you say it's a positive that the signs of cooperation between the United States, the UK and France, when just a week ago we were talking about the United States withdrawing from Syria altogether? Well, it's always a positive when the United States is working with its closest allies on an issue of international importance like this. I think, though, that the the, the calming uh, is a result of the fact that the U.S. strikes were, were quite limited. There was no accident or miscalculation that drew in uh, or, or 
harmed Russian forces. And, and thus far, and let me emphasize that, thus far, <clears throat> the Iranians haven't taken any retaliatory measures, but that, of course, may be coming yeah. sometime down the road. Well, this is the point, Stephen, and this is part of your great expertise, is it's all clinical, it's all perfect, and any politician of any persuasion loves to say mission accomplished. How did you respond when the president went for a phrase that we already understand is cheap to say and hard to keep? Well, I was, I, I was, I think I had the reaction that almost everybody just said, did he really use the term mission accomplished? And, and it's clearly, it, it's not really a mission. Syria is not a mission that either the Obama administration nor the Trump administration has taken on. Uh, there are broader issues involved, uh, even given the importance of countering the Syrian regime's use of chemical weapons. There are broader issues associated with Syria that this administration and the administration before yeah. had determined that they did not want to take on. And in fact, at the moment that the president was announcing these airstrikes, he was also saying that the United States was going to leave Syria and that it would be up to the to the neighbors, right. to Syria's neighbors, to sort it out all out. Stephen Cook, we greatly appreciate your time and energy with Bloomberg Surveillance over the last number of days. It is a joy to have with us too brief a time this morning, David Kelly. He is with J.P. Morgan Asset Management, where he combines uh, strategy into market uh, analysis and far more than that, uh, first-rate economics from Dublin and also the green part of Michigan, and that would be Michigan State That's right. as well. David, wonderful to have you um, with us. You and I were talking before uh, we opened here in the hour of the idea that the the CBO buried in the news last week really has a subdued nominal GDP mm -hmm. and subdued real GDP. How subdued is subdued for you? Well, I, I think it, I think it's just realism. Uh, we were this economy is, uh, as I've said many times before, a healthy tortoise. It is capable of growing at about two percent per year uh, in the long run. Um, the tortoise is on a sugar high this year because of all this fiscal stimulus. We're going to get about three percent growth, but it's one three followed by a string of twos for as long as this expansion goes. We're, we just don't have the labor force growth or the productivity growth to sustain GDP growth of over 2% in the long run. I think that's in the CBO's numbers. It's also in the Federal Reserve's numbers. Can the earnings deliver in line with the expectations, considering how elevated they are? Well, the, 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 the whole key is, can we please appreciate how good the earnings are. I think that's, that's, a, I think that's a, I think the problem is that, you know, it's it's kind of like you order a five-course dinner and all the courses arrive at the start. And, and then you say, <laughs> yeah, but what are we going to have for dinner? I mean, you've got it all in front of you. We've got 25% year-over-year earnings growth pegged for this year, following 17% last year. Yeah. Now, 25%, that's, I would think, a normal year in a normal slow-growing economy, as we talked about, would be about 5% earnings growth per year. So if you get 25%, it's like getting five years worth of growth at the same time. So I think I think the the market is always about future earnings growth. That's what the stock market's really about. But for the moment, I think investors really need to adjust their their thought processes here and say, well, wait, if, if I can just treat stocks as a bond, I'm clipping an earnings yield more of about 6%. Yeah. Why don't I just live off that for a little bit here before uh, constantly waiting for the next big thing? Because we've got a lot to appreciate right now. Well, investors and what they should and shouldn't do, um, not like children all the time, it's what they will and won't do. And I just wonder yeah. whether what you think they should do will actually happen. JP Morgan, a great example Friday. Record profit, record revenue, really solid numbers in isolation. Mm -hmm. Then the stock's down 2.7%. 
Well, yeah, and I, obviously I, ca I can't really talk about the stock too much directly. No, but just directly, in terms of the earnings the section. But it speaks to the point that I'm making, that um, you know we've had big gains in, in the market at this point. We've had great gains in earnings. But I think that if you what you should do as a long-term investor is say, well, what are my choices out there? Bond deals are still very low, and they're going to go up. I'm not going to make much money there. I'm not going to make much money in cash. Um, but if you look at the ability of companies to both buy back stock and pay out dividends based on the windfall they've seen from this corporate tax cut, I think people should live off that for a while. And eventually, of course, you know, nominal GDP growth will catch up with these profits, and then the economy, then profits will grow, you know, in in line with 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 uh, the econ right. economic growth. But for the moment, just appreciate how good it is. How lean is corporate America. I mean, you know, Mr. Moynihan this morning at another bank, I don't want to mention that to David Kelly of J.P. Morgan. Oh, another, bank, right. another bank reported today. No, not the only one. And what a shock. They led with expense control. Well, and I think this this is really symptomatic of what's going on around America. We've, because it's been a tortoise-like economy for so long, corporations are really focused on how do I hold down costs. And that that is why we're not, one of the reasons why we're not seeing wage growth. I mean, we're still seeing very <clears throat> slow wage growth um, but because companies right. are so focused okay. on that, they hold down wage growth. But that that is actually allowing us okay. to extend this expansion. Good morning, Bloomberg 1061 FM Boston. We're going to take Mr. Kelly back a million years to your great work, really seminal work at Putnam years ago with Bob Goodman. There was an inherent optimism to Goodman Kelly economics like there is to Kasman Kelly economics now mm -hmm. at J.P. Morgan. Our audience doesn't feel the optimism. Sure, the fat cats do with a tax cut. But the wage growth thing, I mean, David, this wage growth debate, you and I did not have 30 years ago. Yes, and it's, I mean, it's not, it's not easy for the average American worker. The problem is it's getting more and more competitive for sellers around the economy, whether they're sellers of goods or services or labor. We've got an information revolution which is empowering buyers. And that's holding down inflation all over the place, including wage inflation. You know, it's not good from a social perspective. I think there are a lot of things in the way the economy is evolving that are really generating fractures in, the, in American society and leaving people behind. Uh, but as an investor, you got to take, you know, this is the way it is. So you need to figure out, well, with the money that I am saving, how am I going to invest it? And I think you should so invest it based on optimism about long-term corporate profits. The, the optimism here of the nominal GDP partition then is a lesser inflation differential but you actually get a piece of it as real GDP actually does better? Well, no, I'm, I, I think we're talking about a few, a few tenths one way or the other. I, I do think we're, we're talking about about 2% real growth. But again, we, you know, in some ways, we need to learn to live with that, too. There's an awful lot of waste in terms, you know, 2% growth could mean a really talking, healthy wait, economy. Wait a minute, are you talking 2.0 or 2.8? No, I'm talking about 2.0 in the long run as a, as a high. I don't think that we're going to, ex I think we'll get one year of about 3% So you didn't growth. help with Jamie Dimon's letter? Uh, well, actually, we did help a little bit, but we don't always necessarily agree with Jamie on everything. But that's, <laughs> Good, that's what we like. Let's try to Bitcoin. cause trouble. We're not talking yeah, yeah. about Bitcoin. Let's do Bitcoin. No, right. That's all right. I'm kidding. The effective tax rate at Bank of America, 20%. Yep. Um, that's coming from the CFO this morning. Yep. And if that's the bottom line for these banks, yep. and yet the bottom line is also that growth's not going to accelerate, do you just assume that this is going all into buybacks and dividends, that extra money that they are making from that lower tax rate? Yeah, I think so. As, as the capital controls, as, as the degree of regulation diminishes, I think these companies will distribute more money to shareholders and buy back stock or pay out dividends. I think buying back stock will actually be the preferred way to do this. That's going to push up EPS because they're going to reduce the number of shares.
I, I, I want to, John, I, I don't mean to be rude here, but I've got to bring this up. We thank David Blanchflower up at Dartmouth College for listening intently this morning. John, David N.F. Bell and David G. Blanchflower, the lack of wage growth and the falling Nehru. David Kelly, explain N-A-I-R-U and why Blanchflower says Chairman Powell's four-rate increase is wrong. Okay, well, well, Nehru is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And the idea is you can push unemployment down so far and then wages will take off. And in fact, the Fed in the long run thinks maybe that's about 4.5%. We're down at 4.1%, but we still got yet to see wages take off. And, I, you know, you could even push unemployment down a bit more. I think it's going to be almost impossible to get wage growth to, to accelerate. Look, look at Japan. Japan has got a 2.5% yeah. unemployment rate and wages are up seven tenths of a percent year over year. Uh, so uh, so I, I don't think that's a, uh, I don't think we're going to see accelerating inflation, but I think Chairman Powell yeah. ought to raise rates. The Fed ought to raise rates because they need to ward off asset bubbles. Yeah. We haven't had an inflation problem in this economy for a generation, but we've had problems in this economy caused by asset bubbles, which lead to recessions. And so we've got to, you know, the economy is perfectly healthy. We need to normalize policy. To, you know, uh, if, if for nothing, no other reason, we've got expansionary fiscal policy. We need to lean against that with more contractionary you know, monetary policy. David Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, don't be a stranger. Greatly appreciate having you Anytime. with us on radio and television. Bring in yeah, George Conclavus, Nomura Securities Managing <clears throat> Director, who is hoping that we don't talk about tweets and probably hoping we do talk about those retail sales. It's a bounce back for U.S. retail sales, George. Encouraging? Yeah, let's start with the data. I think you guys are right. I mean, I think it's after a number of months of weakness on the retail sales side, I get to see some you know, momentum returning there. Hopefully it follows through for the rest of the quarter. We do think you know, Q1 was kind of on the weaker side. You know, markets, you know, the economy really getting its footing in, in the beginning of the year. And the outlook looks more rosy as we look down the road. We do have a lot of fiscal stimulus coming our way, and hopefully that's going to kind of keep you know fueling consumer spending. The last time the consumer got a little bit of a lift was when crude crashed, and a lot of people thought that the consumer would go out and spend that extra cash in its pockets. Um, George, that didn't happen. The consumer tended to save that money. Why is this time different? Well, compared to that period specifically, I mean, that was you know, kind of pre-election and just kind of a point where consumer confidence was not as, as strong as it is now. Although it's come off its, its highs, we still have you know strong kind of small business sentiment out there, and I think that you know the, the belief is that we're going to see this follow through from the government spending into consumer spending. But you know, look, you're you're, you're on onto something that you know there is this kind of preponderance for consumers to kind of save whatever extra cash they get, and we'll see how much they kind of put back into the economy. Just in its uh, sort of its totality over the quarter, George, the data for the United States, not as impressive as some people hoped it would be. Is this going to be the normal for, for 2018, what we saw in Q1? And if it changes, how will it? It should change for the upside. The tricky part, and no one that I've ever seen actually calibrate this perfectly, is that trying to time precisely when the fiscal coffers are open and the money flows into the economy, it's, you know, it's like uh, you know, trying to park a, a, a cruise ship, you know, in the middle of a midtown Manhattan. So we'll see how, you know, it's, it's a lot of data, a lot of new information from the government side, a lot of money being spent, how quickly it gets into the economy is anyone's guess. But we do think there's upside for the balance of the year. Yeah, the upside is I looked at the 30-year bond, the trading bond, George, and the price from the peak. I did a moving average study. And the bottom line is if you had 100 
dollars in a 30-year bond, you're now enjoying $95 or even $94 uh, in your bond. How much price erosion are we going to see? How much of a bond bear market are we going to see? The early part of Q1 didn't kind of, you know, give us a shot across the bow in terms of how much losses we could, you know, expect. And we think that this does come in waves and we're going to see, you know, further price erosion and it's going to be bigger than the actual coupon that you can actually clip to offset that. And that's what makes this year very unique. You know, that, you know, on the one hand, the fiscal supply or the fiscal growth factors are good for the economy, but on the, on the negative side, it is introducing all this debt yeah. and someone's going to have to pay for it and it's going to come at a higher expense. And a lot of fixed income investors for the last three years got locked in at very low rates and they may suffer some big losses going forward. Mr. Goncalves, thank you for that clarity there. And uh, with no Murray and I would believe John Farrell that the key phrase here from George Goncalves was somebody has to pay for it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.